do you know if you're having an occasional bad night's sleep or an actual sleep disorder? And how do you untangle anxiety, depression, and insomnia? In today's podcast, I speak with Dr. Shelby Harris, a clinical psychologist, behavioral sleep medicine specialist, and the author of A Women's Guide to Overcoming Insomnia. Welcome to Project Sleep's podcast. Project Sleep is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to raising awareness and advocating for sleep health, sleep equity, and sleep disorders. I'm your host, Julie Flygar. We're so glad you're here as we work together towards making sleep cool. On this podcast, all guests express their own opinions. While medical diagnoses and treatment options are discussed for educational purposes, this information should not be taken as medical advice. Each person's experience is so unique which is why it's so important to always consult your own medical team when making decisions about your own health. If you haven't done so yet, please hit the subscribe button so you never miss a Project Sleep podcast episode. And if you enjoy this podcast, please leave us a rating or review wherever you listen so that we can reach more listeners and raise more awareness. The Sleep Insight series invites listeners to learn about this amazing adventure we take every night called sleep. Through these insightful discussions, we examine sleep and our society's beliefs about sleep from a variety of angles. We hope you'll learn some cool new facts and analogies that you can use to help us raise awareness about this underappreciated one-third of our lives. Hello, everybody. I'm so excited because we have a very special guest with us, Dr. Shelby Harris. Hi, Shelby. Hi, Dr. Hi, Julie. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. So I think to get started, this question that always kind of something I'm always trying to think about is how do we get people that don't yet know that they could have a sleep condition? How do we get them to know that? Uh, Because I know so many of this people that are probably tuning in went years um, like myself, where I thought I had a problem of my willpower or I wasn't like meant for law school because I just couldn't seem to stay awake during the reading. And it seemed like it was just part of the problem with me um, before I realized it was a sleep issue for so many years. And so, you know, how do you know whether it's kind of like a small problem or like occasional bad night sleep versus like maybe something bigger? Okay. So I think it's a, that's a complicated question in that I think the first thing is that we need to at least more and more physicians and doctors in general need to be trained in sleep medicine or just recognizing sleep disorders. When you think about it, primary care, they're taxed. They have so much that they're asking in just a general appointment that sleep usually is at the bottom. And it's often if someone has like their own complaint about sleep, they bring it up. And sometimes it doesn't get brought up because they're now with billing and everything. It's just super fast with insurance. So it's not the first thing people bring up. So we need to get doctors asking about it a little bit or a lot more and recognizing when things might be uh, recognize which is different disorder. Like you said with narcolepsy, narcolepsy, you know, 15 years for average diagnosis for a long time, getting better because people are learning more about it, but we need to be better still. Now with insomnia, for example, I also, and any kind of sleep disorder, actually, it's it, really, it should be, first of all, your spidey sense. So if you feel that something is off, like you were saying, something is possibly off, like, you know, your baseline. And if you feel like this is a continuous issue that keeps going for a number of weeks, a number of months, and it's not getting better no matter what you do, usually the first thing we always try is basic sleep hygiene, right? So make sure you're getting enough sleep, make sure you're not having a lot of alcohol, like all that basic stuff. If that's not getting better and it's starting to impair your functioning, 
or it's happening multiple days a week, right? So consistency. So three or more days a week, you're having some sort of issue with excessive sleepiness or you're not sleeping enough. And that's going on for a number of weeks, say a month or more. That's when you want to talk to a doctor. So a lot of people that I see will say, well, I have a bad night here and there. I have a bad night here and there. That doesn't mean you have chronic insomnia. But if you have insomnia or hypersomnia, whatever the issue is, but it's happening multiple days a week for a few weeks, if not months or more, talk to your doctor. And if your doctor brushes it to the side, that's when that spidey sense that I was talking about is like, there's something off. This is not my baseline. Maybe it's a sleep disorder. Maybe it's something else. Maybe there's some um, other deficiency going on. Maybe it's diabetes. Who knows? But talk to your doctor. And if you feel like you get brushed off, go talk to someone else. You really need, you know yourself best. I forgot to ask you also how you got interested in sleep. I meant to start there. How did you get here? Where, you know. Okay. So it started at Brown. So Brown, yay, yay. has an awesome, awesome sleep researcher there which I didn't appreciate how amazing she was, uh, Mary Karskadden. So I just sort of like audited her class. I didn't actually take the class. Audited it. And I, I really just, it was sleep 101. It was like basic sleep. And I just thought it was really interesting. And then when I went to graduate school, or actually before I went to graduate school, I worked at the Brown Med School for a year and I did addiction work. So I worked at the med school going to rehabs for people who were in rehab for alcohol issues. And what we did was we treated their insomnia while with, it was with a medication approach. It was using trazodone, but we treated their insomnia while they were in rehab. And then we looked at their sleep issues. And if their sleep issues were well-maintained, we found that people actually didn't have as much relapse with their addiction because they were sleeping better. So one of the big reasons that people will often relapse initially is because they're not sleeping. They start using substances again to go back to sleep. So if you treat the insomnia at first, they actually start sleeping better. And that's when it made this thing go off in my head saying, wow, some, such a, a small change, not, it's not that small, can make a change in someone whole, someone's whole life. And that's when I started to really get interested in sleep even more because I saw like what sleep could do for someone's whole life. And so going to graduate school, I did my dissertation in it. And then I went to Montefiore and I worked in the Sleep Wake Disorder Center where Michael Thorpe and Mita Goswami, who does a lot, who did a lot of narcolepsy work. They both trained me and really let me see the patient as a whole. And I had my own little carved out niche there and I just fell in love with it. And I've stayed with it forever because there's something about when someone's sleep gets better, you see how much more it improves their life. Mm -hmm. So I love it. Uh, we hopefully more people will feel that way. Um, I wish I'd taken the sleep class at Brown. Like, oh man, I could have saved myself a few years because I would have learned about narcolepsy probably in cataplexy and maybe I would have, but I was in the art history building, just all art history classes and avoiding all science. I was, I was a music major mostly. I was a psychology major a little bit. And then at the beginning, that was my, I finished that major. And then I actually played the, I played the upright bass and I was like I orchestra and everything, but I just took the sleep thing just on the side as random. I've totally fell into it. And I'm so grateful that I've kind of fallen into it a few times that then it, it led me to the sleep wake disorders uh, center at Montefiore and then really solidified my love of it. That's so cool. Okay. So we need to have our spidey sense up and hopefully, you know, I think that is just really empowering. It's always empowering to hear a doctor say, if someone, if one doctor tells you, like kind of ignores you to go to another, uh, because somehow that still feels like you're doing the wrong thing. And so thank you for saying that, uh, because that's just really empowering. Any point, any point of your journey, really. Just 100%. Like and I try to educate my patients a lot that I work with when they're going to various physicians. Their physicians are great. They're, you know, but you have to advocate for yourself too. 
So if you feel like something's off, I, I some, some of my patients are afraid to speak up sometimes. So I work with them on, okay, what are the issues that you're noticing are happening? Let's make sure that you're at least communicating it, that you're not afraid to communicate. It might actually be received fine. But if it's not received well or it's brushed off, then let's talk about what the next step is for you to do. Mm -hmm. So you've done a lot of media and education work more than most sleep doctors. And I really, really value that because you're actually talking to the public, you know? So how did you get into doing that? And what do you feel like, you know, I just find it fascinating because I think even just working with the media and narcolepsy, I often have to be educating them about what narcolepsy really is. You can't just assume that they know, even if they do a little bit of research. So I'm just interested about um, why you got into that area and then what's your experience been like? It totally fell in my lap. So when I got to Montefiore, Dr. Thorpe had done, he was a pretty, he's very well known in the field. And he had started, I'm trying to remember, he was doing like the Donahue show. If people, anybody remembers Donahue, he was like yes. doing Donahue and all these things. Because he'd been at the sleep center since the 80s, early 80s. So he was doing all that stuff, the media stuff. And when I came on, he saw that I was passionate, that I liked to, I liked to talk. And he was like, you know what? So we had a PR department at Montefiore, and they sent us sleep requests all the time from the media. And he was at some point, he was like, I'm done. I don't want to do this that much anymore. And he sent them to me. And it's interesting. I don't know. I just had a proclivity towards it. And then the more I started doing them, I didn't need the request from Montefiore. It's just, you know, things live on on the internet. So then a reporter might just search for sleep doctor or whatever. And then I just, it just spiraled from there. I personally love it. 95% of the time, because I can clarify things. A lot of the things I get are more like pop kind of psychology, sort of like, if you sleep in this position, what does it mean about your personality? Like that sort of stuff. And I can just kind of be like, there's, I don't really do any of that. And there's no data behind it. So I can push that stuff to the side and I can kind of pick and choose. But I do it mostly because I want to educate people. So I'm very passionate about insomnia, narcolepsy, what are the different treatments? Why, I want people to learn that not everything is necessarily a medication or that medication is the right approach. And the other thing I'm really big on is like trying to get people to just recognize if they have apnea because that's huge. And so many people just have no clue about it. So if people can at least have some awareness to maybe bring it up to their doctor, that's, I, it, it's a win in my book for doing all that media. How did you ultimately decide, Shelby recently published a book, 2019. It feels like I've oh, lost track of end of 2019. I've lost yeah. track of time. The Women's Guide to Overcoming Insomnia. And I was just curious, you know, taking on a book is a big deal, <laughs> having done one myself. And so when you thought, when you looked into the future and said, I want to do this, how did you decide to take approach the approach of a women's guide and also insomnia? So the um, publishing house had approached me and said, you know, we're interested in writing, having you write a book about whatever you want. And I said, you know what, I really like, I want to do something that talks to the public more so than maybe an academic sort of book. So that's where I narrowed it down first. And I said, you know, insomnia is something I do day in and day out with that sort of treatment. And then they said, but you need to try to have some niche. And then I thought about like, what is the majority of patients that I see? And it's like women. And it's interesting when I was writing the book over what, 2017, 2016, 
there was a little bit of research for women in insomnia, but it hadn't really exploded over the past year. Now everything's like women in insomnia, women in insomnia. It really wasn't as big of a thing five years ago, six years ago, and I started working on it. So I had some research and I was just like, you know what? I want to, I, I have so many women that either muscle through, they end up coming to me because this has been going on for 10 years and they powered through because they had no time to put themselves first or they figured, you know what? This is normal. I shouldn't be sleeping anyways. Hormones are a problem, all these other issues. Or they put everyone else first. Like, um, they, or not even just putting others first, they just at night would like do everything else and not prioritize their sleep. And so I just felt like it was a niche area that I could speak to also having a 10 year old and a five year old myself. So I know, and being in my forties, I know what the hormones and all that sort of stuff. So it really just spoke to me and it's spoken, it's spoken to a lot of people. I'm really glad that it's been so well received. So I think that like one of the interesting things that I became educated about through your book is kind of yeah. connecting between anxiety, depression, and insomnia. Tell us a little bit about that. So the way we think about insomnia in the field is the most traditional way. That's a newer way of thinking about it is that there can be something that sets off anxiety, something that sets off depression, an event, the pandemic, who knows, whatever it could be a medical diagnosis. It could be a, a good stress sometimes. But oftentimes there's things like depression, anxiety that are starting to happen. And then when you start to feel depressed or anxious, you might start to have some sleep problems on top of that. And what happens is when you start having some sleep problems because you're feeling down, a lot of people will, for, who are anxious, they find that they can't turn their brains off at night or they wake up really early and their brains are going like this. Or people who are depressed sometimes will just lay in bed ruminating a lot or just nap a lot during the day and have trouble sleeping at night. At the beginning... Yes, the depression anxiety might actually really be fueling the insomnia, but what happens is after a few months, all the behaviors that you start doing, like sleeping in or going to bed too early, or for people with insomnia napping, which is totally different from, say, narcolepsy, caffeine use, sleep aids, you know, all that sort of stuff, that's actually stuff that's maintaining the insomnia for a lot of people. So what we try to do, what I try to do, and what my book focuses on is treating the things that people are doing, I always say it's, the, it's an issue with common sense. So it's all the things that you're doing that are common sense to try and catch up on sleep, worrying about it, going to bed early, sleeping in, whatever. That's the stuff that's actually getting you in trouble more so, more than maybe the initial depression or anxiety that started it. So we try to treat them almost as two separate issues. So depression, anxiety with one treatment, insomnia, very focused behavioral, some cognitive treatment on the side. And that actually works very well. The problem is a lot of people have this assumption and people still in like psychiatry still have this assumption that, well, just treat the depression, treat the anxiety and their insomnia or sleep issue. We see this with nightmares too. We see this across the board a lot. There are other sleep issues will get better. But the reality is the sleep issues don't usually get better for many people. They're sort of this residual thing because they didn't get targeted separately. So really, if you find you're in treatment for depression, treatment for anxiety, that's wonderful. Keep doing that. But if your insomnia is not getting better, really think about seeing someone for a targeted treatment to help it in that respect. It's so interesting. Thank you for sharing all that. I just feel like, I don't know, it's just, obviously it's not my personal experience, but I know other people that do have insomnia. Now, so many people you talk about, I mean, obviously you're a behavioral specialist, and I know that's one of the areas where studies have shown consistently that uh, the, the behavioral, cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia is more effective long-term or as effective or more long-term than... As effective initially than most sleep aids, or many sleep aids, but it shines long-term. 
that's really, yeah. How do you manage in a world where knowing that so many people are going down sort of the medication path? Uh, maybe, I don't know if it's true, at a primary care yeah. level, um, so that primary care doctor feels empowered to treat it with uh, sleep aid, but then I guess that's maybe for some people short-term, but then so many people end up taking those long-term. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, again, it's complicated, but a lot of it is, first of all, CBT for insomnia, the behavioral cognitive behavioral treatment, it's the first-line treatment by both the American Academy of Sleep Medicine and Primary Care Society. So um, it really should be the first line treatment, but there's a few issues. One, there's not a lot of me, people who are true specialists in the field. There's some people who like say they do it here and there, but there's not a lot of people who are really specialists in CBT for insomnia. So a lot of primary care doctors have no idea what you refer to. There are apps, there's books, there's stuff that are good to start with, but it's also education of the docs. So some docs just don't know about CBTI. Some docs... No, but patients who aren't sleeping are so, especially if it's a new onset sort of thing, they're so distraught by it a lot of times that I don't blame the doc. They want to help their patient feel better, right? So there's some of that pressure there too. And it's hard nowadays, right, to say refer to me and there might be a long wait list some weeks, you know, it depends. So it really varies. A lot of what I do is trying to get, educate docs too, to like, let's do this first. Here are different ways. If you can't get in with someone, let's start with an app or a book or whatever. Or you come see me. That's all I did at Montefiore a lot of times was a lot of education of the physicians there. But it's also a lot of what I do is, like you were saying, people start it and they can't get off of it. So a lot of what I do is doing CBT for insomnia alongside whoever's prescribing the medication. And we very slowly work to get someone off, readjusting their program every time they step down. Sometimes people are surprised. They thought it was going to be harder than it was. It actually was. Sometimes it's harder than it actually they thought it was going to be. So it varies, but that's a lot of what I do is getting people off of sleep aids slowly over time. Anybody has questions on where to find someone who's a provider? The Society of Behavioral Sleep Medicine has a really good listing. And you can also go to my website and I email me and I'm happy to like direct you to the right place too. For people that might have other sleep conditions, I think, you know, that's what's always drawn me to um, be in contact with you uh, is that often I think for something like narcolepsy, people are very medication focused and medications are super important, but that there could possibly be other things that, you know, we could be doing. And I'm still learning about some of those best practices from other communities and seeing what could work for narcolepsy possibly. Of course, for me, I think social support is so important that people have know other people with narcolepsy so they don't feel alone. And so there's social support, but probably some cognitive behavioral stuff too. So what's your take on a multidisciplinary approach to something like narcolepsy? That's where I basically was born into sleep medicine, right? So I, that is the model with which I was taught. So Montefiore had the narcolepsy center, the narcolepsy institute that dated back to the, I think the early to mid eighties with Mita Goswami. And she saw a lot of narcolepsy patients, did group, ran groups. A lot of our patients from the New York area, a lot of patients from the Bronx. But she saw patients for, they had a monthly group that, I, that went on for years. And they did that with Dr. Thorpe. And it was, it was a perfect model to show that not everything is medication-based. And then when I came in, they were that, you know, I started to provide... Um, more of the CBT kind of approach too. So we had the psychosocial, Mita did so much stuff for just 
employment issues that people were having. She had, she was a wealth of knowledge. And then I did a lot of work with patients who might have had depression, anxiety, negative thoughts about narcolepsy that might be impacting their life and acceptance. And also sometimes not always acceptance, challenging some of the thoughts you're having because not every thought we have is based in reality. So teaching people to look at their thoughts. Is this a realistic thought? Is it something that I can change? And if I can change my thought or the way I, I approach my thoughts about this, this disorder or whatever it's impacting in my life, maybe that will help my mood in general. So I did a lot of that. And then I also did, you know, it, it totally depended on the patient, but I would do napping strategies. I would do caffeine strategies, diet strategies, exercise, lighting, all that sort of stuff too. So I came at it from that way. And Montefiore was amazing in that we just saw the patient as the whole patient. So that's, there, in my opinion, there's no other way to really approach, especially narcolepsy. Right. But that's so not what people m mostly get. I mean, it just is heartbreaking to constantly hear stories. For most people, they get a prescription and they leave an office and go on their way. Uh, and it's just, it's heartbreaking that that multidisciplinary approach isn't really what most people are getting. So what kind of, I, I'm especially interested about what you said about napping. Um, I think it's it's really always like a, it's still a big challenge for me. I feel like it's really tough to know. I don't schedule my naps. Maybe I should. And because I don't, I kind of let the day happen. And then if I happen to be in a place where I'm still home and it makes sense and to take one, then it's great. Yeah. But then yeah. I'm often on my way to tennis and I get sleepy, you know, and then it's like, do I pull over and then have to delay by 15 minutes with my best friend who's going to be there and we only have an hour to play. And so I just kind of push through. What are your thoughts about napping strategies? <laughs> I think, you know, it, like I said, it really depends on the patient. It's so, I am a fan of them when they're useful. Some people don't find them particularly helpful or they find it more like a frustration in their life to be able to do, not even that they, they just can't find time to do it, that it causes more frustration than anything. But if it does help you, then you have to arrange your life in a way, it's not ideal to try and figure out how you can do it, but also know that it's not possible to do it every single day, probably like you were saying, right? But then it also really depends on the person. Some people really do so well with like the 90 minute kind of 90 minute to two hour long nap. Is that necessarily always possible? Some people need just a 30 minute nap. It really varies. But the thing that I do try to encourage is I'm a big fan of circadian rhythm and the body clock. Mm -hmm. So if you go to bed at the same time, you wake up at the same time, and you take the nap, you can, you can kind of see how much more bang for the buck you'll have overall if you're consistent with certain things. And the napping is one thing that really can help if you do it at more of a consistent time. But then you can play around with the amounts of time and know if you can't do it, then it is what it is. It's not ideal. All right, let's talk about this. Let's, let's talk about circadian rhythms and stuff because I had a big moment reading your book where you were talking about body clocks and the environment and about how our body clocks thrive on consistency. I've heard about circadian rhythms. I've heard about body clocks. But reading your book for the first time, I realized we are connected to our environment, all of us, in a way I hadn't really realized. I think I thought Julie Flagger decides what Julie Flagger does. And I'm an individual. And I, you know, of course, narcolepsy has been humbling and realized that I need my sleep. But as far as the timing and making sure I'm getting sunlight during the day and then not having light at night, I'm always kind of like, whatever to all that stuff, because I'm like, I got enough problems, I'm going to deal with them the best I can. But tell us a little bit about 
our body clocks and, and why that's important. So like you were saying, Julie Flagger can do whatever she wants, right? We all think we're special. Guess what? We're not. But we're all, we're all humans. We all have these body clocks that are set. I mean, the reality is before electronics came around, before alarm clocks, before this kind of concept of a weekend versus weekday, insomnia rates and just sleep disorder rates, I mean, certain different sleep disorders, but insomnia in general was not anywhere near like it is now. And I think for in general, to get your body on a good rhythm when it comes to falling asleep and waking up in the morning, we need consistency. That's how your, the cells in your body thrive. They know the clock. They know when to do certain things. They all have different functions. Your brain in the pineal gland, it releases melatonin to help you sleep. And it does it at around the same time, a few hours before you go to bed. If you have varying bedtimes, varying wake times, your, your body doesn't release the, the chemicals that it needs to release to be able to sleep on a consistent basis. Now, granted, it's different for, say, narcolepsy and, and say, apnea, but there's still this idea that we should be sleeping when it's ideally dark out, but that's not always possible for people who work shift work, whatever. But it really is the thing that keeps people's, if, especially if it's not insomnia, that's what keeps insomnia at bay for many people is consistency. And probably it sounds like even eating, like the eating time should be consistent and probably not really? bedtime. Okay. So this is, I think, right up your alley. I love reading about different parts of psychology or whatever. So I read a book about willpower. Okay. Um, they were talking about how willpower is a thing that goes, that you only have so much every day. I can't remember, but you have a certain amount. And when you use it up, it's like kind of gone. So your willpower gets less and less throughout the day as the day goes on. Uh-huh. I forget which chemical, but so I thought about that. And that makes me realize like, maybe that makes going to bed at the right time and, and shutting down from my phone and not eating a bowl of ice cream. I know I also have narcolepsy and I'm a pretty sleepy person and probably make some bad decisions around sugar at night. But in general, I just thought like, if our willpower goes down throughout the day, like how do we then, how can we prepare to like set ourselves up to make better decisions at night when our willpower is the lowest? That's a great question. And I think it makes so much sense, right? You have like just fewer defenses against all the things that you want to do in it, right? I'm a fan just from a behavioral standpoint, and I've done this with myself. I'm a fan of picking one thing to change at a time. Instead of saying, tonight's going to be the night that I'm going to go to bed. I'm not going to do all these things. I'm going to do all... It's too much. But it might be a little bit easier to be kind to yourself, do what you normally do, but say, you know what? Tonight I'm going to aim for one Netflix show as opposed to three. And I'm going to stop it at that point and then get in bed at a certain time or just aim for one and just, or for some people, it's just turn off the autoplay where it goes from show to show. That one step alone is really hard for some people to do because then they have to make a decision if they're going to watch another one. So it's sometimes just something small like that, right? Because the, the idea of like, I'm going to avoid all sugar at night is a hard one, but maybe pick, I'm going to try to go to bed at this time tonight, or I'm going to cut off electronics as opposed to an hour before, if that's hard for someone. Start with just 10 minutes before, because that, even if you don't have a lot of willpower at that point, it might be a little bit easier. And once you get that under your belt for a few days or a week or so, it's not an issue anymore. It's, it's automatic. Mm -hmm. Then you add on something else. And then okay. you add on something else. It's that just, sounds reasonable. I feel like I could do that. I think for me, I need to work on consistency. I think that that's probably like a big one as far as like, and still let myself do whatever I want, but just the timing. Yeah, I'm not immune to all this stuff too. I get sucked into all of it myself. Right. So 
And I sometimes will notice, okay, I'm doom scrolling a little bit too much or whatever. It's like, I have to back myself off, but sometimes it's hard to just cut myself off fully. So one thing at a time, or if I'm eating way too much at night, I'll say, you know what, I'm just going to cut off maybe the ice cream for a little while. You just have to do it slowly. It's really how behavior change works the best. What about for children? Do you treat children and do children? I think that's probably the area where I've seen actually there's been some more attention to other approaches besides medication. Like that somehow, I mean, maybe that's just from knowing the Boston group pretty well at children's, but do you have any sort of different techniques you use for kids that are diagnosed with sleep disorders? It depends on what the sleep disorder is. So I am board certified. I've worked with babies through, I always say like three months through my oldest patient was 92. So I've had the whole range. I do a good amount of sleep work with like babies, toddlers, preschoolers, and even like nine and 10 year olds. I have a lot of nine and 10 year olds right now, but it's more that it's, it's more insomnia sort of stuff with them. I am not though a child psychologist. So a lot of times when it's sleep issues like that, like insomnia sort of stuff, like I have to have my mom next to me, it's a lot of parent training. So that's what I'm doing a lot more of. If there's an underlying significant anxiety or depression disorder, then I usually refer or like a significant separation anxiety, then I refer out to a child psychologist. But a lot of times, a lot of it's parent training, right? Let's do some reward charts, right? With the really young kids. Then I do some modified, just whatever the, whatever we need to do based on the age to get them sleeping through the night and sleeping better. There are a bunch of different ways that we'll do it. With narcolepsy, I don't see that many kids but I did when it was at Montefiore where I was on the um, FDA approval studies for Xyrem. So I saw a good number of kids in the studies there where we were working with them, but it was really much more of a drug-focused kind of uh, approach. We just didn't really see many kids with narcolepsy there. Well, I think they probably have a lot of the same things. You know, a lot of this, the social isolation and the challenges we've been talking about, about maybe they actually might have more scheduling. They have a, often a more regimented schedule because of school yeah. um, than I do as an adult. Yeah. And I see a lot, a lot of adolescents, like young adolescents to maybe even older adolescents who have circadian rhythm issues. So there's the consistency, right? So they are extreme night owls. So that's something I've seen for years, but it's gotten worse with the pandemic. Sometimes it's gotten better if they don't have school where they have to get too early anymore. But it's, that's, that's an area that we treat a lot. It's interesting with kids, from my perspective, we try to treat everything behaviorally first and then go to melatonin or whatever else the, the treatment might be. It's different with adults a lot of times. Although that being said, melatonin is used like candy a lot of times for kids and it, not, it has a place for sure, but it shouldn't be the first line thing that we should always try. Just like with adults with insomnia, not always a quick fix. Yeah. Do you have any wind down tips for night owls in recovery? So night owl is how extreme of a night owl. So if you find that no matter what you do, you can't go to sleep earlier and you want to go to sleep earlier, there are treatments for like that circadian rhythm issue, right? So it's like, I can't go to bed until four in the morning, but everyone's in bed at 10. Then there are things you can do with someone, if you, like someone like myself to try and get you going to bed earlier. Because it sounds like you're trying to force yourself to wind down a little bit and you can't find anything to make yourself sleepy. That's what it sounds like. I mean, wind down really varies. Like it doesn't matter about the time. Whatever time you go to bed, we always try to encourage half hour to an hour of wind down. So that means dim lights, let the melatonin come out naturally in your brain to help make you sleepy. That's the whole point of it. But it varies on everyone. Like some people really like to read. Some people want to do, I have a lot of patients who are doing puzzles right now, like jigsaw puzzles sort of things. 
knitting is popular, meditation apps, but you just want to be careful because if you have the phone, then you're staring at a blue light. So just take it, put it to the side. Audiobooks are really good. And I have like all these younger patients that are watching The Office left and right. The Office and Friends, super popular. And they all want to watch it, but I'm trying to get them away from the screens. So if they have to, and they want it like steps at a time, right, to move away and change your behaviors, then get blue block. They're not the ideal, but you can get like blue blocking glasses or get like a filter for your computer that will help block some of the blue light. So you have to find something that works for you. Because if you resent it, you're still not going to go to sleep. But then if you really, if nothing's working and you have a very late night owl kind of issue, then you might want to see someone because we can do things to try and get your circadian clock moved a little bit earlier. Circadian issues are basically the idea is that your body clock is off. That's the idea behind it. So there's the two most common ones are the, the night owls, delayed sleep phase. So that's when you go to bed late. And you wake up late, but you get a full amount of sleep and you sleep throughout the night. It's just shifted. The other set is you go to bed really early and you wake up really early. And that's if anybody here has a, or is of themselves, has an, it's a lot of times we see in older adults. So if you have an older adult who complains, I wake up at three in the morning every night and I can't go back to sleep. All you do is ask them, well, what time do you go to bed? If they're going to bed at 7 p.m., that's a phase issue. It's not insomnia. They're getting a full night's sleep. A lot of those patients get put on Ambien and stuff in the middle of the night. They shouldn't be because it's a different problem. So the delayed one we see a lot in adolescence, and that's when we really see it. And it's interesting because of the late school start times and, or the, the online school for a lot of people hasn't been as much of an issue. But before the pandemic, I'm just giving talks to schools all the time about the problem with too early of a school start time because you're waking up, you're sleepy, right? And your brain is just not functioning in the way it should be when you're sleepy. And we're testing kids, we're testing people at a time when they're still half asleep, essentially. Mm -hmm. So that's a big area that I think hopefully if schools go back to an early time, that hopefully my field will be able to get them to really rethink it. And then the other thing is like sometimes with circadian, like delayed people, sometimes they just pick a career that actually fits what their issue is. And then it's not a disorder anymore. Some people just choose freelance work or they choose to work as an actor or something like that where they can, or a writer where they can work late and it doesn't really matter. It doesn't cause a disruption in their life. A sleep issue is an issue when it causes a disruption in your life. Well, yeah, I think it's interesting when you don't know though. Like I, I have a feeling <laughs> I have a good friend that I, I think it's circadian. It's a, like a delayed circadian. But the social dynamics of that, if you don't have a diagnosis, are yeah. really how, you know, especially if you have kids and, you know, you can be up and you could, you know, take care of the kids in the middle of the night, but then, you know, nine or 10 in the morning and you're not doing great. And so it would just be interesting, even the conversations could possibly change in that household if you knew what you were dealing with. hundred um, percent. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, it's like, you have to think like, is it, it really is only diagnosable, that sort of stuff as a disorder, if it's causing an issue. So a lot of patients will come to me and say, well, I just want to sleep on a more normal schedule. It's like, but why? What's your reason? What's your why? And they have to have a real reason for it. Otherwise, the treatment's not going to fall through. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm curious about your thoughts about, uh, you know, there's a lot of people always think of technology as, you know, solutions. And I've seen this happen to friends that they think that their sleep is off. And so they're going to get a Fitbit and it's going to kind of like, they're going to be a tracker sleep and then therefore solve their sleep. Yep. I, I think that's problematic in how these things are marketed uh, in a little bit more of a solution way. But what are you tracking? And 
I have heard some thoughts about even that these can cause extra anxiety about sleep though. So I was yeah, curious. You hit it. You hit, you hit the nail on the head, right? So, I mean, I have one too, right? And I've tested them. The idea is that I always look at the trackers as being really good for people who can sleep, but they don't make sleep a priority. So you're someone who's working 90 hours a week, you're falling asleep, you're going, getting into bed at three in the morning, you're getting up at six, and you're just chronically sleep deprived, but that's based on your own choice or lifestyle. So I think they're really good for helping make someone more aware of just how little sleep and what time they're getting in bed and what time they're, because they're really just movement trackers. That's essentially, I mean, they have some other fancy stuff that they do, but some track heart rate stuff, but it's... That's when I think they're valuable to bring, to give someone that light bulb moment. There's like two areas of sleep medicine, right? There's the area of treating sleep disorders. And then I am do a lot of wellness stuff too. So I'm a big fan of like, if people are good sleep, like if they don't have an actual sleep disorder, but they don't make sleep a priority and they can't actually get sleep, they need to start making a priority because it's going to help the rest of their life. That's when these are good. The watches are, there's research that's been coming out that essentially shows that this is not so accurate for, like, they'll say, you got this much deep sleep, this much light sleep. Like, no, you need to have a, a sleep study for that sort of stuff, right? They're, they're not so exact in that aspect. And I think what happens if you have some sleep issues already, all it's going to do is make you hyper-focused on it. I have, I have patients do a sleep diary for me every week when they come to see me. It's, there's a version of it on my website. There's a version of my book. I much rather care about what someone... Uh, subjectively thinks about their sleep than what the watch says. And I have patients that will come in with just printouts of like Fitbit day. I'm like, no, I want to treat your perception. If you feel like you woke up 10 times for an hour, that's a problem. But if you start reporting that you're only up once for a short amount of time, then I know you feel like you're getting better. That's all we care about. I don't care about what the watch says. So really, if you have a sleep disorder, trash the watch, don't trash it, but just don't wear it at night. It will make it worse for you. Yeah. I mean, I do use it sometimes for the circadian rhythm though, people like just to kind of see what time they fall asleep and then wake up, but I'm not looking at the middle of night stuff. Thank you for addressing that. We always want to find hope in different places. And um, I think that there's a something sexy about technology solving our sleep. And so thank you for explaining because that could be useful for some people. And right. But even that being said, like I'm a fan of like, I'm doing something with my best friend. I'm like, sleep and your bedroom. Like I'm a fan, I will do stuff to make, I want you to enjoy your room. Like you, you've done a lot of, like you want to make it a place that you enjoy. You want to have all that sleep hygiene around you. But if something is marketed as this will fix your chronic sleep problem, question it initially, right? But things that you want to have like a basis, good, like good bed, good sheets, like all that stuff. This though is not going to necessarily get you there. I do think that weighted blankets are pretty cool. And, and, and so what are your thoughts about those? I don't think they're really talked about uh, very much. I think people, there's more talk about the technology than, than yeah. weighted blankets. So what are those? That's, that's another, like I'm, whatever makes you comfortable is great. You want to be comfortable for sleep, but don't expect it to solve all the problems, right? Mm-hmm. Weighted blankets. So weighted blankets are great in that, they, for some, there's been research on them for kids with autism and some ADHD that we, cause it's this kind of like pressure feeling that kids sleep better with them. Typically you have to weight it properly. Usually about 10% of your body weight. Problem is there's really not that much. There's a little bit on like adults with anxiety, but there's really nothing for sleep. It's fascinating. I bet you in the next few years, there'll be a lot of stuff coming out. 
but there's really not much. That being said, anecdotally, I have so many patients that sleep with them who have a good amount of anxiety. It's more the patients with a lot of anxiety, I find, that really like them. It just gives them that sense of touch, pressure, and just calm. That's great. A few caveats, though. If you get hot at night, they're not always great, so you want to find a cooling one. And then the other caveat is if you get used to sleeping with a weighted blanket, good luck trying to sleep without it. So you're going to have to carry a weighted blanket with you in places where you travel to. So that's the one thing you have to keep in mind, right? So... I love those caveats, though. I think those are really important. <laughs> so. Like if anything you train yourself to sleep with, like a sound machine, right? That's like you need to have a sound machine for a long time. It takes, it's, a, it's something that's got to be broken. It's not an easy habit to get rid of. They're not bad, but it's just something you have to think about for the future when it comes to sleeping. Mm-hmm. Um, what about sleep and menopause? And uh, tell us about sleep and aging. The sleep and aging. So don't expect as you get older to sleep like you did necessarily when you were 17. So there's like two different things going on. So as you get older, what typically happens is you don't need drastically less sleep. So that's a big misnomer that we hear a lot. This is normal sleep in general. So you don't drastically need a lot less. What tends to happen is when you get a lot older, like later middle age, older adult aspect, start taking a nap usually. And so the sleep at night is a little less because you're napping during the day more. And the sleep at night becomes less deep. So you don't have that same like restorative, deep, deep, deep sleep. And that's something that I try to educate patients on a lot because a lot of times people just want to be knocked out throughout the night and they resort to like Ambien and other medications, but that's not necessarily going to give you normal sleep either, right? What should normal look like? But if you're waking up a lot to pee, like some of that's normal, but then there's a fine line as to how much of it's excessive. That's when you want to talk to your doctor, how long you're up for at night. Menopause, hormone changes in women affects it um it start perimenopause which is usually starts usually in like early to mid 40s for many women it's a period of a number of years until you have a cessation of your period for at least a year that's when you hit menopause so that transition from perimenopause to menopause lots of hormonal fluctuations and that's when people start to have night sweats they'll wake up with a hot flash in the middle of the night they find that a lot of women i work with will wake up in the morning or early morning because their mind is racing that's stuff that really can impact sleep, but there are medications, there are um, supplements that you can try. My book talks about all of them. And CBT for insomnia has some data behind it. I work with women all the time who are going through menopause to try and make some behavioral and cognitive changes for them to help them sleep better. So there are definitely things you can do. And that's one of the other reasons I didn't mention why I thought to write the book is that so many women are like just suffering. And sometimes it's really hard. Menopause is really hard, but there are treatments that can help. It shouldn't be suffering in silence for years. So important. And so yeah. I'm, not, I'm not like, I'm like getting close to 40 and I'm not ready. You would, uh, it's going to, it's going to come. But um, you know, the other thing with hormone changes too, is that think about sleepiness, right? So there are, there are issues that can happen before even a woman ha- like every month before she, she has like menstruates or whatever that week before typically either causes insomnia for some people or it causes excessive sleepiness. So if you notice that there's something going on that's off with your sleep that week before, I'm always a fan of tracking it. That's where you might want to talk to your doctor too, because there are treatments that you can do to help with it. Wow. And what do you think about age and sleep disorders? I've heard a lot of different things. I've heard it really can vary similar to pregnancy and narcolepsy. Like some people feel less sleepy. Some people feel more sleepy. Their symptoms get worse. So what do you think about uh, narcolepsy and aging. Narcolepsy and aging, I just haven't seen as, personally, haven't seen as many older adults 
So I, I can't speak to it so much from what I've seen. I have seen a number of patients. It's, it's mixed, right? I've seen some patients report that it's gotten a little bit better over time, but I haven't seen someone for long, long amounts of time to see them really later in life. Yeah, I, don't, I mean, I think it, from what I've seen, it does tend to dissipate a little bit, the severity of it. Yeah, I've also heard that maybe people when they're retired, you know, kind of find their, kind of like what you were saying about finding a job that works for your sleep schedule. But that's interesting, right? So you, you kind of, you can, you can work around it a little bit more. But then that being said, not narcolepsy, there's a lot of people that when they retire, they develop insomnia. So your sleep cycle, right? Your body clock, you now are like, you know what? I have to get up at the same time I got up at for 50 years. So I'm just going to do whatever. And if I have a bad night of sleep, I'll sleep in. I'll do all these other things. And that can worsen the sleep too. So I see more insomnia patients that come to me and they're like 50s, 60s, 70s because they had new onset insomnia. Wow. And then what about poor sleep quality? So like, I mean, that's kind of what I was going to ask you about is that I've been thinking a lot about analogies um, because we use this analogy. Project Sleep's been using it because I remember reading it in an article that uh, Jerry Siegel wrote like a long time ago, 2000, I think. Um, and he said that the sleepiness of narcolepsy was similar to being awake for 48 to 72 hours. That was like the call to sleepiness. And so we've been using that for a while. And then recently I was kind of like, I don't, I mean, I think what people get out of that is, wow, wow, that just seems really extreme. Yeah. But I'm not sure that people get it in a sense of like, that they could actually know what that feels like, because I don't know how people really stay up for 48 to 72 hours. Yeah. So I was kind of thinking about um, other trying to think of other ways. And one thing that came to mind to me, because, of, and then people say something like, well, wake up in the middle of the night and try to do your taxes without any coffee or something. It, it, it is hard, right? To say, it's like, you've been up for three days. So what, but it's, what are all the things that chronic sleep deprivation really do affect, right? It's memory, it's irritability, it's just, you know, just stress tolerance, all that sort of stuff. So I think that you need, people need to connect with that aspect too, but it's like, how do you get at that, right? So maybe not even just like sleep quantity, right? So I think definitely like there's, there's people who misuse Ambien, right? Or any of the sleep aids, and then they end up doing things and they have no recollection. It's like autom automatic behaviors, right? They're doing things, they get, they drive, they get in car accidents, all this sort of stuff, because part of their brain is literally shut off. So they took it too early in the morning when they got up and they just really should, should have been sleeping and they weren't. That's, the, I think, a good way to think about it, right? You're going through life in like a fog with like an automatically just doing things without connecting or really thinking about it. But then the other way to think about it is like newbornhood, right? Newborndom. Like, but there's a bit of that like stress tolerance is not there. You're not thinking clearly. Like sometimes for some people that can connect to them too. But it's a hard concept. I do agree with you. It's a hard concept for people to get other than that, wow three days awake, but the ambient thing or any kind of medication where it turns off a part of your brain and then you just do automatic things without really realizing what you're doing and knowing what you're doing. That's, I think, pretty powerful for some people. Yeah. You know, as a community, I want to keep thinking of analogies and ways for people to try to understand, but I think that's a really parts of your brain. I, I just couldn't get, I just can't get through to that. Like I, I had an ex-boyfriend where I just say, I'm really, really tired. Like we just, we're coming home from a movie. All I can do is just be a body. But still, just trying to engage with me, trying to have conversation, and like I'm just not going to be a nice person. I'm just not there. At least I could say that, which is the best I could do. <laughs> like, but like, if you have a newborn, a lot of I mean, some people are more power to them. They're like fully in it. And they're great. That was not me, right? I was too super sleep deprived, recovering from 
having a baby. It's more of like just just doing everything. Like, okay, I've got to change a diaper. I've got to feed. I've got to do it. But there's no other, you can't, you have no brain space for anything else. That's it. And then I got to go sleep on and off. Um, before we close, I just want to hear a little bit um, from you as closing thoughts on self-care, which is a very hot topic. I, I always liken it, and this has been so cliche, but I always liken it to that, excuse me, when you're on an airplane and the, the oxygen comes down, you have to put on your mask first. If you're not good for yourself, I, I mean, I will be no good to my patients. I'll be no good to my family. So the things that I know that make me a better person just day to day, getting enough sleep. For me, exercise, which I, I figured out 12, 13 years ago, that helps to regulate me a lot. Like I need to make those things a priority in my life. And I know there are days that I won't get in, but that, that just, it, that's my, my lifeline. And that will help me be a better person in the whole wide world. And it's not selfish. I mean, I've seen that quote all over the place recently. Self-care is not selfish, but it's true. It will just make you a bit better to everyone else to help and do what you need to do in your life. Prioritize yourself. Well, perfect. All right. Bye for now. Thanks, Dr. Harris. Thank you. Bye, Julie. The Project Sleep Podcast is produced by Carver Sound Productions. For more information on podcast production services, visit carversoundproductions.com.